Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. This is episode 144, and today we'll be chatting with Andrew Pelling, an award-winning scientist, professor, TEDx senior fellow, and entrepreneur. Andrew's work and innovation have been featured in publications like Wired, Motherboard, Scientific American, Popular Science, the BBC, and more. Andrew directs and manages the Pelling Research Lab out of the University of Ottawa. This lab uses low-cost, open-source materials and methods to explore new technologies and ideas. He has, for instance, created human body parts made from plants and grown living skins on Legos, both examples of innovations with the potential to replace expensive commercial biomaterials. Andrew has also founded Factory, a street-level research lab in Ottawa that amplifies community ideas through a potent mixture of craft, serendipity, and curiosity. He joins us today to share his story, what motivated him to take a completely different approach to research and academics, what it's been like creating significant impact through his biomaterial innovations, what it's been like building and growing his open-source-based biomedical research company, Spiderwort, what he's looking to do with Factory, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet at us at hacktostart, drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're super excited to have you on and to get to hear, you know, you share your story with us. But before we dive into what you're currently working on, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from? And what did you study? Well, I mean, I was born in England, but I, I grew up in Toronto, pretty much. You know, as a scientist, I've kind of traveled around, lived all over the place. So it's kind of the, one of the nice parts of being a, being a researcher. That's cool. And what kind of research, you know, do you typically do? Or what, you know, did, did you major in, I guess? Well, I mean, <laughs> my degrees are in chemistry, technically. And then, you know, through a bunch of random twists and turns, I ended up being hired by the physics department at the University of Ottawa, uh, where I started a cell biology lab. And it's a real mix of disciplines, all all different scientific disciplines, We've got artists in there and social scientists as well. So it's a pretty broad lab. And I, I think I'm pretty lucky. I, I get to run a, I, my, or my job basically is to run a lab where we get to answer questions and be curious. So I don't don't really direct the lab in any particular discipline or, or application. We just sort of go where our curiosity leads us. So it's, I think it's pretty unique. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds really cool. So how did your passion for, you know, research or the, the research background and sort of technology develop and fuse over time? I think all of us are inherently curious creatures. And I I don't know, just years ago, I just sort of gave up trying to justify my curiosity. I, I wanted to really you know, establish a research lab that could ask any question. And, and so it's sort of very freeing just to say to yourself, you know what, curiosity is valuable and I don't need to have an application to make it valuable because it's something intrinsic to who we are as human beings. And, uh, you know, this was all kind of spawned out of a, a series of events when I was much younger, as I was training as a scientist. I would spend, I don't know, weeks, months in the lab working on some little problem and analyzing data and conducting experiments and be in the lab till the middle of the night, seven days a week. And, you know, after months of this, I would finally glean 
something out of the data, this new discovery or a piece of knowledge that admittedly wasn't like earth shattering, but you know, it was new. I was the first person to discover this new thing. And I would go and I would tell my colleagues about this. And I was inevitably sort of met with a blank stare and this question that to this day still breaks my heart. They would look at me and say, well, what's the application? And, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with applied science and engineering, of course, right? Like we want solutions to problems. But what that question signaled to me was that this discovery I had made had no real value unless I could put a dollar sign beside it or a clear healthcare application, uh, no matter how bogus that, you know, justification was. And I, I thought, you know, I can complain about this for the rest of my career or I could take a risk and establish a research lab and say, you know, we don't do anything useful on purpose, right? We're just being curious and asking questions and we'll see where it leads us. And uh, that's how I ended up in Ottawa. <laughs> that's really cool. And what, what is it? What were some of the steps or some of the challenges, I guess, in, in setting up your own research lab? And how do you go about convincing somebody else to, to help you do that? Yeah, <laughs> um, it's not necessarily easy. The thing is, we, we want a lot of these, you know, at a publicly funded research institution, you want to see certain outputs like scientific papers and discoveries and patents and spin out companies and these sort of very tangible, measurable outputs. And I have this hypothesis as a junior professor that if I just simply created a space that nurtured the curiosity that's intrinsic in people, and I, I went out and I deliberately hired the most creative and industrious and hardworking people I could find, and then just gave them this freedom, the hypothesis was that we would still have these outputs, that we would still make discoveries, we'd still publish papers, that knowledge would generate IP and companies and everything else. And um, nine years later, conducting that experiment, here we are. And so far, that experiment has worked. And I, I think for anybody who's not really kind of in academia, the thing you need to understand is that this was super risky. <laughs> uh, I took a huge risk with my career. You know, when you start as a junior prof and assistant professor, about five years, four to five years after you start, you're supposed to apply for this thing we call tenure, which is basically you're moving into, you're getting promoted and you're moving into a permanent position. And if you're not a uh, world leading expert in something, if you haven't had all the scientific outputs that we just, that I was just talking about, you're unlikely to get tenure and you're probably going to get fired. And I, I started my job assuming that I'd probably get fired. And I, <laughs> I, I just assumed, you know what, in four to five years, I'm going to lose my job. So I better move now <laughs> and take the chance while I have it. And I, I laid it on the line. I, I figured, you know, maybe I was arrogant, too youthful, who knows, but I figured no matter what, I, w I was relatively smart and I'd figure something else out to do with my life and my career. So I was young and I was going to take that chance no matter what. I wanted to try this experiment that badly. And what we found over the years is that we've done the things you want to see. And because of that, we've been able to generate funding and we've won awards and that's generated visibility. And we brought on lots of different partners and institutions to come along on the ride. And I think it's just success. You know, we've had successes. We've shown the model basically works. And, you know, not all the time. We've learned some lessons along the way. But, you know, because we took that chance, sometimes you have to risk it all through hard work and a lot of luck, we, we got here. So. Absolutely. That's really cool. And, and that the research lab is, is your company, Spiderword, correct? 
So Spirewort is actually one of the tangible outputs. My research lab uh, exists at the University of Ottawa, and it really is there to ask fundamental scientific question. And this is it's kind of part of the success story here. Even though we started asking really, really fundamental questions that didn't seem to have any applications or any potential real-world impact, the knowledge we generated led to technologies and patents and things that now the next step is to commercialize. And that's where one of our spin-out companies, Spider-War, came from. And it's actually, it's a good story. We were trying, about four or five years ago, we were trying to um, grow, I, I don't know if you've seen this movie, um, Little Shop of Horrors. I haven't, no. <laughs> yeah, it's got this giant, like, it's it's horrible. <laughs> it's just over-the-top cheese whiz type of sci-fi. Uh, there's this giant plant in this movie that eats people. And its name is Audrey too. And the question that came up was, could we grow this plant in the lab? And uh, I mean, it's absurd, right? It's totally absurd. But, you know, no matter what, in my lab, when the question comes up, we employ the scientific method. So what's your hypothesis? What are your objectives? What's the experimental plan? And, and how are you going to analyze the data to test your hypothesis? So we worked that problem. And because of that, we developed a whole new class of biomaterials, so materials for medical applications, and some new technologies along the way, like hardware technologies. And um, it all came out of this kind of seemingly absurd and very silly type of question. But following that curiosity, following the data, led to the tangible outputs. What's nice to see is that we're not just doing academic science, but we're actually now at the point where that knowledge is being translated into the marketplace and, and taking that next step. And that's where Spirework came from. <laughs> really cool. And can you tell us a little bit more about some of the technology that, that's come yeah. out of Spiderword and, and what that next step involves for you guys? Yeah, Spiderword's really, there's really two elements here. It initially started on the hardware side. So my lab, what we do a lot of, uh, we grow a lot of biological samples like cells, human cells and stem cells and that sort of thing. You know, this is nothing that special. This is what biomedical research labs do worldwide. Uh, one of my colleagues was, she was complaining or not complaining, just kind of lamenting to me. She'd studied in North America at top schools, but then moved back home to a developing country, which is where she grew up. She wanted to take that knowledge back to her home country. And she was saying, you know, one of the things that's really challenging is that in my country, you know, we just don't have the funding available for me to buy the technology I need to work on biomedical research problems with like real healthcare applications. And one of the key pieces of technology here is what we call a cell culture incubator. It's basically a warm box with a controlled atmosphere. So it's a very simple piece of tech. But, you know, these things can cost between 5 and 10K. And, and you know, where she was working, this was, it was kind of unreachable. And it really bothered me that she wasn't able to do the science she was trained to do. And, uh, you know, and given that this technology is so simple, I thought, well, I'm going on sabbatical. I was, I was about to get a year off to, to just be a scientist and not have to do all the administration. And I thought this thing is so this thing is so simple. I'm going to give myself the challenge of building it out of garbage. My challenge is I have to go find all the parts in the garbage, build it, and show that it works. And this is a great like a uh, hardware project. You know, it's I figured I'd build it on an Arduino platform and uh, open source the whole thing. And uh, yeah, so I, I eventually did it. Built this incubator out of garbage. I actually created or differentiated um, stem cells into into muscle fibers. And I also took human stem cells and created functional neurons in this 
piece of equipment that typically costs five to ten thousand dollars, but I built it out of garbage and still was able to do this really complicated biology. So we're getting near to the end. We're getting close to the end of the story now. Um, I decided at that point I would open source the project so anybody could have access to this incubator. And I put it all online, documented it, put the code on GitHub, and hold it. And um, the next day, I'm inundated with emails from around the world from people who don't want to go build it out of garbage, but would rather I just put together a kit and sell it to them at lower cost. And so I was telling this to my students and they were like, well, why don't we start a company and do that? <laughs> if everybody's asking for it, why not just do it? How hard could it be? <laughs> and um, that's where Spiderwort began. And that's one division of the company is just sort of scientific hardware, open source at low cost. The other side of Spiderwort is what we call biomaterials, which are materials that you can implant into the body that you would use to, say, do reconstructive surgery. Like, say, your nose or something like that was destroyed because of disease or an accident, a surgeon might implant a prosthetic there. And again, those things can be very expensive. They're often made of materials that are animal products or even derived from human cadavers or sometimes are petrochemical products. And we discovered about four years ago that we could make very similar types of materials, but directly from plants. And what we've been getting a lot of exposure over lately is that we created a human ear out of an apple and for a fraction of the cost. And um, Spiderwort is the entity through which we're commercializing this product and, and driving the clinical trials and, and all of that. So that's the other side of Spiderwort. And again, it's about making biomedical technologies, hardware and wetware more accessible to a global population of, of people. And that's, that's what we're doing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That's really incredible and, and, and like amazing work. <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think about. It's crazy how much it's blown up because, it, it, again, like just to remind everybody, this started with us trying to create a plant from a sci-fi movie, right? <laughs> like That's where this started. And literally four years later, here we are going into clinical trials, commercializing technologies and got IP and the whole bit involved in this. So it's it's really remarkable. It's really taken us by surprise. Yeah, absolutely. And and how many how many of the uh, the open source kits have you guys uh, been able to sell so far? If you don't mind yeah. me asking. No, that's a good question. We're we're just getting started. We've just finished our beta testing, and we are we've got customers lined up in the Ottawa region, Ontario region. We're only we're keeping it like demand is huge right now, but we're trying to take it one step at a time because we're pretty new to this. So we're we're just going to sell to sort of local regions so we can make sure we can support the technology right now. And over the next few months, as long as everything's kind of running smoothly, uh, we'll then sort of open it up to the international market. But I mean, people are like banging down the door with a huge waiting list and email list. And, you know, this is why like, I'm such a bad businessman. But to be honest, the project is open source, right? You don't actually have to buy it from us. Uh, you can go on the Pelling Lab site and find it. And and that's what's what's happening already. People are, are some people are just building their own kit, uh, incubators. But there's a huge, huge market for people who just don't want to bother with soldering and coding and all that, and just want a working product at lower cost. And, and we we can sell our ready to go product at you know eighty to ninety percent less than our competitors right now, just because it's just because we're smart, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, not smart, but we've we've you know looked at what are the key pieces of equipment characteristics you need in this product and what's sort of 
enticing and not necessarily not necessary and 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 what can you do cheaper and faster building off the arduino platform is one of these key decisions and, and this actually lends a lot of flexibility for our users so yeah we're, we're early stages taking it slow and not trying to blow up too quickly just to make sure we do things right what have been, I guess, some of the lessons or the biggest lessons to come out of this experience, especially in terms of taking something that started as an academic project and moving it into, you know, uh, an, an open source business model? Yeah, well, I mean, I think academics and business people have very different goals. Right? <laughs> so the first thing is that, you know, universities want to commercialize all sorts of things that come out of academic labs, but a basic science discovery out of an academic lab is a totally different thing than a prototype or beta tested uh, or prototype for beta testing or even commercialization. So it's almost like the development cycle has to start again, right? You can't just move from somebody's prototype on a lab bench directly into the marketplace. <laughs> and I think that unfortunately that step gets ignored in the rush to incubate and accelerate and commercialize. I think it's it's actually one of the key steps that needs more development or needs more thought from both universities and people interested in commercialization. My initial prototype for the incubator, remember, was built out of garbage. Like it was literally styrofoam box and bits and pieces of computers I'd found lying around and random wires. You know, there's a whole development cycle that needs to happen to make that a robust piece of technology that can go into anybody's lab and function for several years on end, right? I developed the open source prototype as just a quick and dirty thing, creating something that's going to be robust and reliable in a functional, in a research lab is is there's a lot of design criteria that needs to be thought about and developed. So it took us, um, you know, I, de I deployed the open source project in the beginning of 2015, and now we're at the beginning of 2017 getting ready to actually enter the marketplace. So that shouldn't be ignored. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool. And probing a little bit further, what is it about open source platforms in particular? I mean, you kind of gave an example as to why, but as you got more into the space, you know, what is it about open source in particular that you find very interesting or challenging as you've gone about, you know, setting up this this business? There's pluses and minuses to open source. And I think, you know, a lot of people just champion open source as the only way to go. I think there's a balance here on what can be open source and how you do it. I think in general, I'm I'm an advocate. I think innovation, all that happens quicker and faster if you can get it out to more people, uh, whatever it is. Uh, that being said, you know, we shouldn't ignore some of the realities of how you deploy in a sustainable way. So for the hardware side, I, I love these Arduino platforms. They're very useful for a lot of things. And, you know, if I'm going to use other people's knowledge and, and code that's already been shared online and take advantage of libraries that are already open source, then whatever I'm working on, I'm going to make sure that it stays open source because I've stood on the shoulders of giants and I want to share that knowledge. That is my primary agenda is knowledge sharing. The incubator and the scientific hardware stuff, the original intent has always been about making the stuff accessible, not just to corporations and labs that can afford it, but also to scientists, talented people who might work in a garage, who might work in a developing country. I want them to be able to do science. I think that benefits like all of humanity. 
On the flip side, you know, the other division of SpyWord is a medical device that needs millions of dollars of support to go through medical trials, clinical trials, development cycles, all the regulations and liabilities and everything that's involved in that. And, you know, that's a lot of upfront costs. And to make a sustainable company that's going to drive this forward, you can't necessarily just give it away. I think you can do, there are some really interesting hybrid models out there that are being developed right now that we're definitely looking at where, you know, for research and development, certain things might be open. But if you want to generate profit, then you, you need to license or, you know, there's, I, I'm not saying we've, I'm not advocating any particular model right now. I just think it's it's more complex and subtle and a lot of thought needs to be put into these different models that are out there. And it's, it's not always clear. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a tough choice sometimes. And I personally, I'm only speaking for myself. I'm not speaking on behalf of the company at the moment, but just personally, I'm, I'm a little bit torn about how to proceed in the future and what are the best ways forward, given the various market challenges and clinical challenges that are out there. Growing is always a challenge, and figuring out the best you know path forward is uh, it can be tricky. But it sounds like you guys are considering all the options for sure. Yeah, and it, it's it's about just going back to my roots as a research scientist. It's this is about being objective. Like, look at the data. What is the evidence telling us is the best way forward given our objectives? That's what drives our decision making process. And I really don't like absolutes. Like something has to be this way all the time. I, I, <laughs> because you can always find an exception. And locking into dogma is never a good idea in my mind. Assess the data. What is the data telling you now? And what does that mean for the future? And being able to pivot and be flexible like that is, I think, the best strategy. Yeah, definitely. And so I guess kind of Simultaneously, you've also started a street research lab in Ottawa called Factory. So can you tell us a little bit more about this organization, what a street research lab is, uh, and what really motivated you to start that sort of alongside uh, all the stuff you're doing with with SpiderWord? Yeah, so this is a a classic example of opening your mouth and... Things getting a little out of hand. Um, I was uh, I was giving a talk just like literally just about a year ago, plus or minus a couple weeks, like a year ago at Hub Ottawa, and I was I was there to actually speak about my TED experience because I was I was named a TED Fellow about a year ago. And at the end of the talk, I sort of was I guess I was kind of complaining about the fact that my university research lab was basically buried in the basement of a building that's very intimidating, and the general public doesn't walk in. Right. And, you know, one of the things that really drives my lab forward is our diversity. We're full of people who are from all branches of the sciences, who are from all branches of the arts and humanities and people who are not necessarily academics. Not everybody has even finished high school. Right. Like it's it's a really broad environment. And that's by design, because I want to have as many ideas flowing as possible. And to do that, you need diversity. And so one of the challenges, of course, then being on a university campus is that the general public is quite intimidated in general and doesn't walk into your lab and participate in the research. And so I blurted out, you know, hey, wouldn't it be cool to put my lab on the street, like in a storefront? Seriously, like minutes before the talk, I had sort of Googled around an image search. I was looking for a cool storefront and I found one that sort of looked like an Apple store. I erased the name of the store and I just pasted on the front of it, factory, and I threw up this image. <laughs> And I guess that's the power of a great image, <laughs> uh, because I, I didn't wasn't serious about it. It was more of a provocation. I wanted to create a debate about 
Well, to be honest, it's kind of fear-mongering a bit. I thought people would freak out about a biological research lab on the street and get scared about biohazards. And, and I thought it would provoke a bit of a debate that way. And, and that's what I was trying to do. What happened was I stepped off stage and there's literally a line of people in front of me all saying, you know, like, what are your hours? When are you open? Where's the address? <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. I'm like, holy shit, like, what, what is going on here? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's how Factory got started. <laughs> I started getting emails. Uh, this went on for weeks. Uh, and I sort of ignored it because I thought, like, people are going, like, these people have lost their minds. Why, why are they interested in this? And somebody, Luc Lalonde, I don't, I don't know if you know him, but is a character in Ottawa who, who's quite involved in a lot of maker and citizen type of initiatives, uh, came to me and said, you know, let's, I think you really sh should start something here. Let, let's do this. And he was sort of the first cheerleader. And um, I started breaking it down like any other research project in my lab. I said, well, what's the hypothesis? And what's the methodology? And how are we going to do this? And since that sort of throwaway comment, factories really evolved. And there's now a core team of people and partners and everything else. And, and we're really starting to move. And it's I want to say it's still an experiment, but we'll see what happens as we move forward. And now the original throwaway comment about putting my lab on the street, it, that vision has very much changed. But the idea of people having a participatory role in audacious research projects is still very much at the core of what we're trying to do. And the way, I guess, the model that we're working with now is we've just opened a call for research proposals, project proposals, and anybody can apply. And what we're looking for are project ideas that seem completely audacious. Just like these are ideas that are probably never going to work. You might not even see the point of working on them. And, and we're looking for those really kind of wild ideas that could potentially be transformative and incredibly disruptive. And I don't mean in that in the sense that they're going to create a billion dollar company. I mean, they could transform a single person's life or they could transform just the way we think about a certain thing. Who knows what? The types of projects that never get funded, you know, because they're too risky and they're they're not safe. And, <laughs> you know, we can't guarantee the outcome. In, in essence, I'm, I'm taking the way my lab has always worked in our little microcosm. We're trying to scale up at this point. And really, can we curate really interesting ideas from the general public and actually execute on them? And, you know, we, we accept from the start, most of them are going to fail. But the hypothesis is that, you know, every now and then something is really going to work and, and work in a really unexpected way and potentially have a really transformative outcome, just like Spider War, just like the other successes in my lab. And we're now conducting the experiment. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. And we'll link to the site so people can definitely apply. So on that note, so you're based in Ottawa and the, the lab is based in Ottawa, Canada. But where are you accepting applications from? Like what kind of people are you looking for, I guess? Yeah, it's crazy. You know, this, like, the whole thing is just absurd sometimes. We've had people from all over, all over Canada, even internationally reaching out to us. Even before we had the proposal process open, people were sending proposals. Three different organizations in different countries have asked to franchise factory. 
I mean, we don't even know what it is yet. And it's just, it's really taken off. And I think, you know, we're, all of us, we're so used to living in a world where risk aversion, uh, risk mitigation is the first priority. And I'm not saying we're going to do things that are dangerous or unsafe, but I think there's an opportunity here to take calculated risks and to take on projects that when we look at them, we ask ourselves, you know, or we say to ourselves, you know, this is probably going to fail. It's probably not going to work. Or probably wasting our time and money. But we at Factory, we ask ourselves, what would happen if it worked? You know, how impactful could it be? And we move on it if we're satisfied that it could have a real outcome. And because Factory is not, that is our mission, right? It's Our mission is to do that. We're, we're set up as a B Corp. Our mission is to generate knowledge, to generate return on knowledge, return on openness, return on audaciousness. And because of that, I think what we're essentially doing is we're providing a service here, which is risk as a service. <laughs> which I think is a sort of, this, that's the new model we're sort of playing with at the moment. And um, we're already seeing indicators that, that this has real, could have real value for a lot of different entities, both corporate entities, as well as the public spheres, as schools and children. And I think there's an opportunity here to do something really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, we'll definitely have to stay tuned and, and kind of see what comes out of it. And we'd love to see it become a huge success. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so would I. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the thing is, in many ways, I've already done it. Like this is what my lab does in a much smaller scale. And what we're doing right now is scaling. And we're applying, you know, all the lessons I've learned over the years, uh, running a university lab, we're applying it now to, to factory. The projects we take on don't necessarily have to be scientific. They can be artistic. They can be, ideally, they should be highly interdisciplinary. And I really think that our hypothesis that we might take on a project that seems absurd and it might fail, but what's most likely to happen is during that failure process, that's when you discover something really magic uh, and surprising and unexpected. And, and that, that's probably what is going to be the ultimate success um, that comes out of these projects. Yeah, absolutely. This might be like, I guess, two sides of the same question, but how have you approached, I guess, getting the, the word for your different projects out there? Like, it seems like mm. these things just, just tend to blow up, which is a little <laughs> bit un, unheard of in, in sort of the academic industry. So why are you, why are you based in Ottawa and, and how has that helped or not helped? And, and how are you approaching, you know, kind of changing the world uh, through this approach, I guess? It wasn't deliberate. It's not like I sat down. I have to do this in Ottawa. I just kind of ended up here. And Ottawa is the right place for this type of initiative. It's just, unfortunately, the city gets this reputation of like the city that fun forgot and being boring in governments and all that. And the reality is that under the surface, there's this incredible scene of people who are doing just incredible and audacious things and, and across the spectrum, both in the technology side as well as in the arts and the social sciences. I just happen to be plugged into this network of, of organizations and, and people who all have, we all have the same sort of aligned interests and idea that creativity and taking risks can lead to to incredibly transformative impacts. And this isn't some pie in the sky vision. This has happened through the course of humanity, right? Like we've seen again and again through the course of history, major discoveries, major technologies coming about by pure accident, right? Just being in the right place at the right time. And I think we can actually curate that sort of thing. If we create, you know, an environment where you're basically having a lot of accidents and you're, and you're bringing together a lot of random, diverse people, you're sort of curating serendipity and chance 
And, you know, unfortunately, I think in our current society, we sort of wait for that to happen. We wait around for the Steve Jobs, you know, to show up. I think we can create that and sort of like turn up the temperature on it and make it happen faster and better and stronger. And, and that's what part of what we're doing at Factory. And so Ottawa is sort of small enough and full of enough kind of free thinking people, even though it doesn't have the reputation for it, that we can use the city as a petri dish to really understand the factory model, understand really what are the key ingredients, because we don't know quite yet what all of those are. And I think once we can understand it in Ottawa, that's when we can say, okay, now we can move and start franchising. Can we spread this across the globe? Can we put one in Nairobi? Can we put one in, in Paris? Can we put one in, in Sydney or in the middle of Australia or wherever, you know, and start seeding these things and, and really showing the world that, yes, we need to think about risk as, you know, when you run organizations, of course, and you need to mitigate certain things, but you need to also balance risk aversion with sort of risk creation. And one of the things we're seeing is that certain organizations are now coming to a factory and saying, we have a project, we want to take on a really risky initiative, but as an organization, like we just can't, we have responsibilities to our shareholders and, and things like that. But, you know, if we, you know, basically contract you guys to take on a risky project, and if it blows up, it's your fault, right? And, and that's great. As factory, I'm quite happy to take on the risk. You know, we're providing that service at a very small scale, just to proof of concept an idea. And, you know, if it happens to work out and it happens to be successful, then that corporation or entity can then take the next steps to look at is this something that's viable on a larger scale and that's up to them to take forward so we're already seeing that interest and that's it's kind of an interesting place to be it gives you a lot of permission <laughs> yeah absolutely it sounds super cool and so kind of changing the topics a little bit what are some of the the most recent apps or tools or frameworks that you you know use in your daily life to help you you know manage everything do do things that you want to do like what what, what do you tend to turn to on a daily basis i guess uh, I'm not sure I'm managing very well with all the demands. It is chaos right now. Absolute chaos. In terms of favorite tools, I, that's a good question. I don't know that I ever have a favorite tool. It's sort of, the question is more like for me is what's the best tool for the particular problem I'm facing? So I, I don't know that there's one sort of, or even a handful of things that I, I could like point to and swear by. Certainly, you know, I have favorites. Like I love my crowbar <laughs> and this is pretty stone age, but man, like if you have a crowbar, you can do a lot of stuff um, and a lot of, create a lot of damage. On the tech side, one of the things that's been quite amusing lately, and this solves a problem for me, is I get a lot of emails and a lot of people, a lot of people want my time right now. And just managing meetings, right? So I've been using this service, x.ai. It's one of these AIs that does scheduling. Um, and there's a whole bunch of them out there. Uh, do you know x.ai? I know do, this? yeah. I've, uh, I've had a chance to play around with it, and I've also been on the, uh, I guess, the receiving end of a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was a bit skeptical at first, and but... I've been watching this thing learn over the last few months as I've been playing with it. This really convinced me that AI might, there might be something here that we want to kind of pay attention to. But as I've used it, it's gotten better and better. It, it took it, it was certainly, at first it wasn't totally smooth, but now I'm 
really kind of blown away by the subtle subtle inferences it can pick up on and the fact that i don't see a dozen emails sending up a meeting it's just such it's like a godsend to me i like my email box is out of control totally out of control and uh if this thing could get to the point where it could like answer phones man i'm i'd be pretty happy camper (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It is a, it is a pretty cool uh, program to see, and I definitely agree that you know at first it wasn't very smooth, and then all of a sudden it seemed to take on more of a life of its own. And it's cool to see those things kind of uh, evolve, I guess, as you get used to it or as they get used to you. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really interesting, and even for like as we're sort of thinking forward about you know our company and even how my lab operates, I'm already starting to see how we can incorporate AI into a lot of what we do, and it's really interesting to think about these new models and new potential futures to see. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe as just a kind of a final thought for just anybody, I guess, who's who wants to go out and create something but isn't sure where to start, what sort of last thoughts or personal mottos do you live by and you think that those people should keep in mind as they go about, you know, figuring out how to make things happen? I mean, one motto that I live by is if you don't ask, you don't get. So speak up. You got to just ask if you need something. Ask and don't be afraid about it and don't apologize for it. I think the other element here that one of the things that really frustrates me sometimes is seeing really bright young people saying things like, I can't do it or, you know, I have to follow certain rules, thinking that they have to take a sort of predefined route to success. And again, it's it's the people out there who break the rules are the ones who often, not always, but often are the ones who really create really super disruptive and innovative new ventures. And, and I think you need to know what you believe in and then be bold about it and unapologetic. For me, where I started with this lab, I was unapologetic about the fact that we were going to do curiosity-based research. We were not going to define ourselves by applications and I was sure that we would still create successes. That could have failed. That absolutely could have blown up my face. And it was 99% chance that it would have blown up. But if I hadn't have taken the risk and been bullish about it, I wouldn't be here today where I am. Right now, I, we're seeing this, the rewards of all that hard work, but it comes after a trail of failures. And um, and really, I think the key ingredient for me personally was just accepting myself for who I am and just saying, you know, I believe in this. I'm going for it. And I don't care if the whole world is telling me not to do it. I certainly had plenty of colleagues telling me and warning me that I was really going to lose my job and I was risking my career. But you know what? I had to take the risk. So I took it. And that takes a lot of courage. It's not easy, but you should do it. Absolutely. I couldn't think of a a better way to end the episode. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and and share your story and all the cool things that you're up to. No problem. And I I hope to hear about lots of crazy ideas and all of that through Factory in our uh, submission process. That's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, as well as on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do this show without your awesome support, so if you liked what you heard, feel free to share it on Twitter or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and until next week.